Now, usually at this point, I will read to you the verses that we're going to be covering. We're going to be covering Matthew 27, 32 through 56. But before I read that to you and we start breaking that down tonight, I want to kind of pick up where we left off at the very end of last week's study. If you remember the end of last week's study, we were looking at Pilate and how he made the wrong choice because he was feeling pressure from the Jews. He knew the right decision. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that he was not guilty of the charges. His wife had even sent him a note saying, don't have nothing to do with this man. He's innocent. I've been warned in a dream. Uh, he had tried to have Barabbas handed over to him. It's kind of interesting. The Jews are accusing Jesus of causing an insurrection. Yet he then offers to them a man who had caused an insurrection named Barabbas and said, hey, if you're having a problem with an insurrection guy here, why don't you have released Jesus and we'll keep Barabbas in prison. And they wanted Barabbas to be released. And with all that was going on, if you remember from the end of our study, the reason why Pilate made the wrong choice was because of his past. And how the Jews threatened to go over his head again. When they said, when the riot was start to starting again, and they said, if you release, don't release, if you release to us Jesus and don't release Barabbas, if you don't crucify Jesus, you're no friend of Caesar. And that's when he said, I want to keep my job. And he made the wrong choice. Now, I want to talk about something real quickly. The scripture is written, and what God has said will happen is going to happen. But that doesn't mean Pilate didn't have a choice. You do all realize Herod was in town, remember? Pilate could have said, look, he's innocent. I'm not, I'm not having him crucified. The Jews might have thrown a fit. But it just so happens with Herod in town, I could see God just still orchestrating it that Herod would take over where Pilate was not doing his job in Rome's eyes. And he still would have been crucified on that day at that time. Everything that has been written will happen. Don't let the sovereignty of God and the fact that he's already spoken how things are going to play out. Don't let that make you fall into a fatalistic attitude of, well, I don't really have a choice. No, he did. But he made the wrong choice because of his past. And what I want to talk to you about in the brief pit period tonight before we get into our study for our section that we're looking at. So I want to talk to you about how Satan will try to use your past against you, but Jesus will erase your guilt from your past if you give your life to him. Go with me to Psalm 103. <clears throat> Psalm 103 verses 8 through 14. Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The only issue, though, is this. Whether you're willing to give up your position in this life in order to walk with Jesus and live for the world to come. That's what I want to talk to you about a little bit briefly. Pilate was more concerned with this life and the position that he had. And he wasn't willing to make the right choice. Remember, the, all these promises are for those who, what? Fear God. Remember? Those who fear God. Those who are willing to reverence him as God. And they're dis you can't just say, well, God, I need you to take care of my eternity. God, I really need you to take care of my sin problem. But I'm going to live for me while I'm here. The Bible says you can't do that. Go with me to Matthew chapter 16 real quick. As you're turning to Matthew 16, remember that the 
the religious leaders we've already seen in John 11 were more concerned about losing their place and their nation. And that's why they had Jesus put to death. They said, if we let him go on like this, we may lose our place and our nation. But look at Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of, the, of his Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what he has done. Go to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verses 18 through 22. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. When Jesus called his disciples and he said, follow me, what did the disciples do? They left everything and followed him. Immediately left everything and followed him. Again, Pilate made the wrong choice. He knew what was right, but he was unwilling to make the right choice because he was still more focused on this life. And I just want to tell you, you're going to have to make some choices like that in the days and the years to come if, if Jesus tarries. If you strive to live for now, and, and, and please hear me. I'm an American. I thank God for being an American. I, I pray for our country. I pray for our leadership. I vote according to God's word. But you know what? I'm not going to spend all my time trying to save America. Because the Bible teaches that I'm not living for here. Let me show you what I mean. Go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, I'm just going to show you three sections real quickly. In this chapter of Hebrews chapter 11, there's what we like to call the Hall of Fame of Faith, men and women of God who live by faith. Listen closely what, to what these passages say about these individuals. Hebrews 11, we'll start in verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going by faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Did you catch that? He was given, demonstrated as having faith because he went and followed God, even though he didn't know where he was going or how it was all going to play out. A lot of us are unwilling to follow God unless we know how it's going to play out, whether or not we're going to like it. On top of that, even though he was going to a place that he was going to later receive his inheritance, and you're about to see in the next verses we're going to look at, did he ever receive it? Did they ever receive it as their inheritance while they lived? No. And they were okay with that because they were looking forward to what God had for them. Go down to verse 13. These all died, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. If they had seeking, thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Jump over to verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of, treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to the reward. And I just want to challenge you as we move into where we're going to be going and looking at Jesus' crucifixion tonight. I just want to challenge you to not make the mistake that Pilate made. Pilate knew what was right, but he was so focused on his life now and his comfort and his... Let's be honest. We've been blessed in America, have we not? We live far more comfortably than most people in the world. But we, we would all even agree. We've got brothers and sisters all over the globe that are having it way worse than we do. What if in God's sovereign prophesied plan, we lose a lot of that comfort that we've had? We probably will. Are you willing to say, that's okay. I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the one to come. I'm storing up treasure in heaven. Or are you going to be like many Christians today that I unfortunately have to deal with who are more focused on saving America? Again, pray, vote, speak up when God leads you to and how he does. But don't don't think for a second you can change what the Bible says is going to happen. And that's why we need to have a mindset that says, I'm OK with making the right choice because I don't have the pressure of holding on to what I have here. I'm going to live for the Lord and whatever that looks like. Let's go to Matthew 27 and look at our section for tonight. Start in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they had put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Listen closely to this next verse. It'll be very important to us later on tonight. And the robbers, both of them, plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. 
There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among them, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Jesus has been tried. He's been found not guilty of any crime, but they decide to put him to death because he's claimed to be God. That's what their final reason for saying he should die is. They've tried to find all these things that are against him. None of the charges could stick, according to the scriptures. But go to Matthew 26 and look at verses 63 through 66. And you'll see that what makes them finally decide that he should die and bring him to the Roman authorities to have him put to death is the fact that he claimed to be God. Matthew 26, verse 63 says, But that Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. What makes them decide he deserves death? What did, what did he just say that made them to say he needs, he needs to die? He claimed to be God. Now, it gets even more clear. Go to John chapter 8. Sorry, not John chapter 8, John 19 first. Go to John 19, verses 1 through 7. We see in the religious leaders' conversation with Pilate, they even make this statement. John chapter 19, look at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again to, and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Let's go to Leviticus 24. Let me show you the law. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Chapter 24? Did I say 4? Yes, 24. Thank you, Betty. Leviticus 24, verse 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. By the way, this is why the Jews were so afraid of even saying the name God. They didn't want to make a mistake of blaspheming his name by even saying it wrong or whatever. But let me clarify for you. When the Bible talks about blaspheming the name of God, it, it, it's more, Well, you remember how God said in his law, you should, in the Ten Commandments, you shall honor the name of God and don't take it in vain. For years, we've thought that that meant using God's name as a cuss word. And definitely, that's a part of it. But that's really not what it means in the context, if you look at the scriptures. It's when you claim to be his and you don't act like him, you take his name in vain. You blaspheme when you claim to be connected to him, but you don't act like him. For years, when our kids were grown or growing, they're now out of the house, but when they were going off to school or going off to work or were going off to hang out with friends, whenever they left the house, I'd always say the same thing. Act like a relative. 
what that means is, is when you leave this house, you represent the Johnsons. Act like one of us. Make our name look good out there. And we sort of always tell our kids, act like a relative. Jesus didn't just say, I'm connected to God. He said, I am God. And the, in the eyes of the Jews, he just broke Leviticus 24, 16. Because how can a man say he's God? They thought he was just a man. And that's why they decided, according to the law, that he should die. Now, this isn't the first time that we hear in uh, Matthew or in John that we looked at tonight. This isn't the first time that he claimed to be God. Go to John chapter 8. Go to John chapter 8. Look at verses 48 through 59. John chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered Jesus, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I, if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, most of you probably know this, but some of you might not. When Moses met God at the burning bush, he, and God said, I'm going to send you to go to speak to Pharaoh on behalf of my people and tell them I want them to come worship me and let them go. Moses said, well, what's your name, God? You know, and when I go and tell them you're, you're God and they're going to say, well, what's his name? And God says, my name is I am. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was even born, I am, they knew exactly what he was saying. He claimed to be God. Now, listen closely. We all have to decide for ourselves. Remember how Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he said, who do you say that I am? Everyone on the entire world has to answer that correct question. And how they answer that question and respond to it from there will determine how they spend eternity. If Jesus isn't God, because remember, he's claimed to be God. Remember, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with, and the, at the right hand of power. He said his name was I Am. If he isn't God, he was a liar. Plain and simple. He was out there to deceive people. If he isn't God, maybe he wasn't a liar. Maybe he was just crazy. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He's either a liar, lunatic, or he's Lord. And we all have to decide. Either he was out to deceive the people or he was nuts and just thought he was God when he wasn't or it's true. Those are the only options we have. You can't, as C.S. Lewis, you can't say, C.S. Lewis says, you can't say, well, I think he was a good teacher. Or I think he was a prophet. No, the man claimed to be God, claimed to forgive sins. He, you don't have the option anymore of saying, I think he was a good man who taught well. No, he's claimed to be God. So he's either nuts, he's a deceitful person or it's true. I'm going to give you proof to the fact that Jesus is God by having you go with me to Acts chapter 5. I'm going to give you a little quiz tonight. I'm always easy on you, but tonight I'm going to make you think a little bit. 
Jeremy can't answer because he was at Bible study last night. Yeah, you're selling the answer later on if you're interested. But Acts chapter 5, I'm going to read to you verses 17 through 39. And I want you to see if I want to see if you can pull out for me from this passage how we know that Jesus is God. In Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 39. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. By the way, don't you remember from our study last week, they all cried out, Let his blood be on us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in, in honor by all the people, stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For behold, before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this, is, this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. How does this give evidence that Jesus is God? It hasn't failed in how many years now? It's been over 2,000 years. 2,000 years have gone by and Christianity is stronger than it's ever been. This is of God. Go ahead. Verse 31 also says God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. From yeah. Right there, he's telling him that he's. Look at that. Glenn's going even deeper, man. That's awesome. Exactly. Folks, let me just tell you, I could spend the rest of tonight showing you all through the Bible how it's evidence that Jesus is God. What I want you to understand is this. We have a tendency to look at what's happening in American churches and different things like that. Show of hands, I wanna show of hands. How many of you ever heard people say this, the church in America is dying? Uh, didn't Jesus say, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it? So what are we looking at? 
Are we looking at what Jesus is doing or are we looking at what we think church is? I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. I don't want to be a part of what man has made church to be. And really, church isn't really about numbers. It's not about buildings and budgets and buses and all this kind of stuff and programs. Church is about individuals who have come to know Jesus as their Savior and they live for Him. They live for the world to come. They're loving. They're generous. They're not hanging on to their stuff. They're not living for their comfort in this life. That's the real church. And by the way, it's fine. Take it from somebody who's not in one local congregation every single week. My role is to travel around and I get to see God at work all over the country, parts of the world when he has me go there. But listen closely. God's at work, folks. People are coming to know him. The church is fine. Your local congregation might be more interested in their position and their power and all that stuff. Hanging on to what you think church is. I want to be a part of what God's doing. And God's building his church and the kingdom is growing. The Bible also says there'll come a point where he's going to gather us and take us to be with him. And all the prophecies about what's going to happen in the last days with Israel and the world are going to come to fruition. Don't get so caught up in your comfort that you miss out on what God's doing in these last days. Now, at this point where we were in Matthew 27, Jesus has already been scourged. And he's being forced to carry his cross to the place of his crucifixion. Now, because of the loss of blood and work weakness, Jesus is unable to carry his cross all the way to the place of his death. So they compel a man of Cyrene named Simon to carry it for Jesus the rest of the way. Now, a lot of people think it, Jesus fell at this point. You ever, ever picture Jesus falling? It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. We get that from the passion plays that we've seen at churches or the movie that we've seen in the depiction of Jesus. The scripture doesn't say why. It just said that they forced Simon to, come to carry his cross. Most likely it's because of the loss of blood and the beating that he had taken and such that he was unable to carry on. But and this is just a little tidbit. With the scripture saying that he was a man named Simon from, Simon from Cyrene, most likely he was a black man. Which I think is kind of cool in the fact that God shows that he would use even a black man to come and be a part of what's going on in his crucifixion and all this. Let me just say this something to you real quick so you hear me. There's only one race. There's only the human race. Don't, don't, don't let anybody fool you into thinking there's different races. If you believe your Bible, we all came from one man, Adam. The Bible says that we all came from one man. So people, people say, well, there's black people and there's white people. No, we're all just different shades of brown. There's only one race. And I love how in this situation here, Simon is, is almost honored in a way to help carry Jesus's cross. Now, look at verse 34 in Matthew 27. Verse 34, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. That's important. Jump over to Mark chapter 15 real quick. And you'll see Mark clarifies it for us a little bit more. <clears throat> In Mark 15, verses 21 through 23. Mark records it this way. In Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place of, called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So Matthew calls it gall. Uh, Mark calls it myrrh. And as you do a little study to find out what this is, it was actually a narcotic. 
They were offering him painkiller. And when he tasted it and realized it had painkiller in it, he wouldn't take it. By the way, it would not have been a sin for Jesus to take the painkiller. I'm going to explain to you why I believe the scripture shows us he didn't take it. But go with me real quickly to Proverbs 31. Now, a lot of us hear Proverbs 31 and we think about the godly woman. But there's actually some verses just prior to that section about the godly woman that may surprise you. In Proverbs 31, look at verse 6. It says, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty. Remember their misery no more. And so the scripture actually said, if someone's going through a real hard time, ease their suffering. It wouldn't have been sin for Jesus to drink this wine that had narcotic in it. But as you're about to see, Jesus is not done fulfilling scripture. And he's got a lot to do still in the few hours that are left in his life. And he needs his full faculties to be able to do this. That's why the Bible says it's not wise for us to be drunk where you lose your faculties. You can't be under God's control when you're under alcohol's control. The Bible doesn't say that it's wrong to have alcohol. But the Bible does say that when alcohol takes control where you lose control, that's when you go into sin. And in this instance, because it had a narcotic in it, remember he tasted it, but once he realized it had a narcotic in it, he was like, no, I'm not going to drink it. Why? Because he still had some things that he needed to do and he needed his full faculties. He didn't need to be numbed. How many of you have ever had surgery and you don't even remember half of what happened? You lose a day or whatever, right? You know, I have to be honest with you. I've had lots of surgeries. My body's falling apart. I love that shot they give you right before they take you into the waiting room. The I don't give a care shot. I love that. I, I, I look forward to that on my day of my surgery. You know, they always ask you, have you eaten anything in the last so many hours? I always answer the same way. As far as you know, I haven't. You don't know. They go, well, we're about to find out if you have. So here's the deal. Jesus, though, could have just numbed himself and finished. But he still had things to do. What we're going to do now is I'm going to read to you. We've already read Matthew's account of Jesus' crucifixion. I'm going to read to you Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion. I'm going to, write to you, read to you Luke's account. And then I'm going to read to you John's account. If you have notepaper or if you have a way to do this, I want you to just start writing down somewhere, if you can, things that jump out of Mark's account and Luke's account and John's account that are different, not contradictory, but different from what Matthew showed us. Some other things. You're going to see a lot went on during Jesus' time on the cross. All we really have in Matthew 27 is Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, give, then dying. A lot more went on. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the accounts from Mark and Luke and John. And then in the time we have left tonight, I'm going to walk you through the seven things that Jesus said and did while he was on the cross. And I'm going to put them in order for you as to what happened before when and show you why. And we pray that God will just kind of open our eyes to some neat things tonight from this. Let's go to Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 39. Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the 
inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jump over to Luke chapter 23. Look at verses 26 through 49. Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Hang on for a second. Those of you who went through our study in Revelation, does that sound familiar? That's going to happen during the tribulation period, isn't it? For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? I can't help but just point this out. Folks, you think it's getting bad now? It's going to get worse. Man's inhumanity to man is going to be unbelievable. And when God removes the Spirit's work through the church, when He removes the church, remember, He's promised to seal us with His Spirit, never leave us nor forsake us. So when He removes the Spirit and His work, through, we have to go. He won't leave us here and take away His Spirit working on the earth during that time period. He, we have to go with Him. And when the salt and light has been removed from the earth at that time, folks, it's going to get horrific. And we're only seeing glimpses of it right now. Keep reading. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Now one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence? We are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you go, come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. 
and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distant distance watching these things. Now, as you turn to John, go to John chapter 19. We'll start in verse 17. To kind of catch you up, if you haven't already caught on, he was nailed to the cross at nine in the morning, which is the third hour. There was darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, which is from noon to three. Read John 19, look at verses 17 through 37. John 19, verse 17. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Doesn't that sound like the Pilate we were looking at who didn't care what they thought? What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, after this, knowing that all was now finished and finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was, that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, as you can see, Matthew didn't tell us a whole lot, did he? Matthew, if you've been in our study of all the last two years, he compiles. He's succinct. There's a lot more that's going on. That's why it's taken us so long to get through Matthew is because as Matthew mentioned something, we had to go look at Mark. We had to go look at John. We had to go look at Luke and look at the get a fuller picture. Too many of us will read one passage of scripture and try to build our theology from it. And I've been trying to teach you, let the whole of scripture show you so you have a fuller understanding of what went on. Let me try to put all these things of Jesus though on the cross in order for you. 
For years, I thought the first thing Jesus cried out on the cross was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Haven't we kind of all felt that way? But that's not the first thing that he cried out. The first thing that he cried out is, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Again, if you want to write this down, we're not going to go back and reread it, but that's in Luke 23, verse 34. And actually, I believe he started repeating this, and I mean this by repeating this. I think he started repeating this from the moment they started nailing him to the cross. Because actually, if you go back and look at it in the Greek, we've always read it as Jesus saying at one time, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Actually, the Greek words it in such a way that it's over and over and over and over. In other words, he probably was saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. All as they nailed him and then they stood him up and slid him down into the hole. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And he was praying, interceding, praying for the people as he was on the cross. The second thing. Well, actually, let me back up here real quick before we get to the second thing. These people involved had some idea of what they were doing. Do you think Pilate had some idea of what he was doing? Do you think Judas had some idea of what he was doing? We know that from how Judas really re regretted what he had done. I've, in, I've betrayed innocent blood, he said. They had an idea of what they were doing, but they didn't have the full understanding of what they were doing. They didn't know the enormity of what they were doing. And to be honest with you, I don't even think Satan had a full understanding of what all was going on. I have proof from Scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you think if Satan really fully understood that he was actually sealing his own death warrant by having Jesus put to death, he would have done it? No. Remember, Satan's not all-knowing, folks. All he knows is what's been written in the Scriptures himself. But he didn't have full understanding. Think about this for a second. Oh, he knows now. But think about this for a second. What a gift we've been given to have this insight. It's not because we're smarter than Satan or we figured it out. It's because God's opened your eyes. If you actually under, angels, as you say in 1 Peter 1, long to look into this relationship that we have. If you understand a little bit of the fact that what happened at the cross, folks, understand, blessed are you. Flesh and blood didn't open your eyes. God's opened your eyes. God would have put him to death anyhow oh. to fulfill the scripture. Oh, it's going to happen. It was going to happen. Whether Satan wanted it to happen or not. Right. But again, Satan's, Satan's purpose is to try to kill him. That way, that's, why, that's why Satan's still trying to kill Israel and wipe them off the face of the earth. You know why? Because all the prophecies say that Jesus is going to come back to the land of Israel. Israel's going to be in the land at that time and all these things are going to be happening. So his thinking is, if I wipe Israel off the map, that can't happen. Well, and discredit. Definitely discredit but he's trying to stop it. We even know from the book of Revelation that at the midpoint of the tribulation, when he's thrown down to the earth, he knows that his time is short. He's still going to do everything he can to fight against it. But I want to also challenge you. I'm going to say it to myself. I don't think any of us have any full understanding of what all was accomplished at the cross. We could spend days and weeks and months really just looking at what the scripture says was accomplished at the cross, not just our salvation, 
but the power that's available for us who believe. All these things that have been taken care of for us at the cross. So the first thing he says, and I believe it's over and over and over, is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The second thing is also in Luke 23. You don't have to turn there. It's in verse 43. It's when that one thief changes his mind. You do remember how we looked at how both were making fun of him. Both were mocking him. But at some point during the time that they're on the cross, one of them all of a sudden changes his mind about who Jesus is. And he turns to the other guy and says, hey, don't you fear God? We're getting what we deserve. This man's done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Um, first off, that blows away any of the teaching on soul sleep. There are a lot of people who have been taught over the years that once you die, your soul goes into sleep and you wait until the resurrection. No, today you'll be with me in paradise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are already with him there. Remember, Abraham had seen his day. Abraham wasn't sleeping. I could go on and on. Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Remember, the Bible's real clear that when you die, if you're a follower of God and have been given righteousness, you're absent with the body, present with the Lord. But what do you think changed this thief's mind? Besides the Holy Spirit. The darkness. Darkness hasn't happened yet. The darkness happened at the sixth hour. Right, but this, this is prior to the sixth hour. No one could have gone through what Jesus did as a regular human. Maybe. Jesus. I've already told you. Jesus' prayer was being answered at number one. Exactly. Think about the fact that the whole time this is going on, the guy right next to you is in a loving manner saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this ties to what you were saying. His response was supernatural in a way that I think that Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Was used of the Lord to open the eyes of this one thief. By the way, we see Stephen do the same thing. Stephen, as he's being stoned, says, Father, forgive them. Don't hold this sin against them. Folks, in your gentle response to what's going to be happening in the days to come, God may use your gentle response, your soft answer to turn away wrath. You're heaping your burning coals on their head. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. Too many people today are saying, well, I have rights. You gave him up at the cross. A lot happened at the cross. Now, the third thing that happens, and this is again prior to the darkness, is in John 19 when Jesus turns and he says, Woman, behold your son and behold your mother. Now, don't miss this for a second. In the midst of taking care of eternal matters for the world, Jesus also showed his concern for the here and now of this life. I mean, think what he's doing. He's, he's dying for the sins of the world. He's, he's fighting spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He's yielding himself to the Father. All this is going on, yet he still cared about the fact that his mom wouldn't have any place to live now or someone to take, to take care of her. It's obvious at this point Joseph must be dead, his dad, because otherwise Joseph would have been taking care of Mary. But Jesus makes sure that Mary's taken care of. And he says, John... That's who the disciple whom he loved, John, wrote it, described himself that way all the time. Take care of her. And from that day forward, John took her into his home. Go to Matthew 26. As the chaos that is happening now in this globe and will continue increases, go to Matthew 6. I said 26. I'm sorry. Matthew 6, starting in verse 25. 
Remember this famous passage of Scripture. Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I love the fact that in the midst of dealing with the eternal matters on the cross, Jesus took the time to care for his mother. The fourth thing I believe is when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the darkness comes. Go to Psalm 22. By the way, I'm hitting each of these very fast for a reason. We need to keep moving. And on top of that, if I stop and taught on each one, it would take a week for each one. And I just really felt like God didn't want us to do that. So we're just going to hit them fast. Psalm 22, look at verse 1. David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Let me ask you a question. Was David quoting Jesus? Or was Jesus quoting David when Jesus was on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes. No. David was quoting Jesus. David was quoting Jesus. A lot of times my answer is yes, but on this one is not. Jesus wasn't quoting David. David was quoting Jesus. He just didn't know it. He was writing. And by the way, I'm going to show you in this psalm. If you were to read the whole Psalm 22, you'll see that some of it obviously applied to David. And a lot of it didn't apply to David. I actually, when I teach the book of Revelation and I begin to teach the book of Revelation, uh, I actually take people first to Psalm 22. Before we even begin to look at how to study prophecy and how to understand prophecy, I always take them back here. Because this is the great way to understand how to understand prophecy. Because if you had read what David wrote right after he wrote it, you would have said, sounds like you're having a bad day, first off. Second of all, well, some of this stuff you wrote about, Dave, didn't happen to you, hasn't happened. What are you talking about? And all he could say was, I don't know. But as I was writing, the spirit of God just had me write that down. And if you happen to be alive at the time when those things that he wrote and you had them in your heart happened, you would go, I know what's going on now. Listen to verses uh, six and following. But I'm a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? Jump down to verse 14. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth in human form. 
But if you had taken and read Psalm 22 and known it in your heart, and you happen to be walking by the cross, and you hear Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of a sudden you say, we hear him say, I thirst. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. His bones are out of joint. They're casting lots for his clothing. They've pierced his hands and his feet. You would have gone, this is what it was talking about. That's why the Bible says in the book of Revelation, blessed are those who read this book and this words of these prophecy and take to heart what is written. Because I believe that many of the things that it prophesies are starting to happen in our day. And if you knew it, you can actually be encouraged by what's going on. But let me ask you this question. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was this the father inflicting pain on an unwilling son? No. No. no, for lots of reasons. One, this is something that the father and the son had agreed upon before the foundation of the world. Go to Isaiah 53 real quick. You're in Psalm 22. Jump over to Isaiah. Look at verse 50, chapter 53, verses 4 through 6 and then 10 through 12. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We saw him as smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jump down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So I'm going to ask you this question. So did the father put the son to death or did the son willingly go to his death? Yes. That one is yes. That one is yes. Folks, don't ever fall prey to any kind of preaching or teaching that shows the father feeling one way and the son feeling a different way. Too often I've heard preachers use this illustration of how a person is guilty and they're going to stand before God, the father in a courtroom scene, and the father is the judge, and you're the defendant, and Jesus is, Satan is the prosecuting attorney, and Jesus is your defense attorney, and how the father says he's guilty. And then the defense attorney, Jesus, stands up. You've heard this kind of preaching. Daddy, look at my hands, look at my feet, and, and uh, let him go. You ever heard that preaching? It has the father feeling one way and the son feeling another. They're always one. And actually, I don't have time to turn there, so we'll finish tonight and keep us up with where we were last night. But if you were to write down Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 5 through 18, you'll see that the scripture prophesied that Jesus would say, Here I am, I have come to do your will. Jesus willingly went to the cross. That's why he even said, remember when he was being arrested? Don't you think I could call my father and have 12 legions of angels stop this? But how could the scripture be fulfilled? Put your sword away. Let's let what God says is going to happen, happen. Jesus willingly went to the cross. But when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was at that moment experiencing, and I don't know how this works, somehow a separation of fellowship with the father. 
I don't know how that works, how God can separate himself from himself where Jesus can't experience the fellowship with the Father, but he experienced it for you and I. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. How did he become sin? Did he sin? No. God took the sin of the world and put it on Jesus. It was imputed to him. And that's how we're given righteousness. Praise God. We're not righteous because we did anything righteous. We're righteous because God takes Jesus' righteousness and puts it on us. The fifth thing he said was, I thirst. We already saw in Psalm 22, verse 15, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. By the way, do you remember in John 19 why the scripture said he said, I thirst? So that scripture might be fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? Just so that people would know what the scripture said is going to be true. Was he thirsty? Yeah. Did he have to say it? Yes. Because so the scripture would be fulfilled. He said, I thirst. The sixth thing he cries out is this. He cries out, it's finished. In John 19, verse 30, we saw him say, it is finished. The Greek word translated finished there is to telestai. It means paid in full. It's, it's, a, it's a, an accounting term. It's been fully, fully paid. Again, we don't have time tonight for you to go there. Write these two passages down and look at them later on if you can. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. It talks about he canceled the whole debt that was against us by the law. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 talks about that. And Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 28 talks about how he is paid once for all for the sins of the world with his own blood. Folks, and I'm guilty of this as well. We have a tendency sometimes to think that when we, we, we kind of break fellowship with God because of our sin, there's some things we have to do to make it right. We have to, some of you might have been taught by the church you were raised in that you have to do penance. That if you have to do stuff to make up for your sin, it wasn't paid in full. You've got to pay part of it. It's been paid in full. Thank God for that. Rejoice in that. And the last thing he said, the seventh thing he said was, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. We're going to come back to that next week. That's what we'll pick up to catch us up with where we were last night as well. But all through Jesus' life, he says, my father this, my father this, my father this. But then at that moment, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then when he finishes and it's all paid, what does he say? Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. The reunion was restored, if you will, or the fellowship was restored. He never lost his relationship because he's always God, can't not be God. But somehow, some way, that fellowship has been restored. And we're going to look next week at the fact that Jesus prayed in the garden right before the cross. Father, I want to be with you and to receive the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And that prayer was answered at this moment here when he went back to be with the Father. Oh, by the way, um, some of you might have been taught that Jesus descended into hell at this moment and was in hell for three days. That's not what the Bible teaches, but we'll get into that next week. I love you. We'll see you later.